Mr. Wilson to ask you some questions, okay? Yeah. How, how are you doing today? Good. Good. Tell me, tell me your name, how old you are, and what grade you're in. Tymir. Kindergarten. Yeah? Uh, Tymir, what do you like about the Boys and Girls Club? It's so fun. And it's fun to be in a rec room. It's fun to be in a class. It's fun to go outside. Do you like, do you have any um, teachers here that you like? It's Miss Passion. Oh, I know Miss Passion. Tell me about Miss Passion. Like, she's the greatest teacher. Yeah? What do you like about Miss Passion? Uh, because, why are y'all doing this? Oh, we're just, we just want to know what it's like for you guys to go to the club. Oh, wait. These, these headphones make y'all hear into it? Is we done? Sure. Unless you got anything else to say. I don't got nothing to say. All right. Okay. I moved this just a touch closer to you. All right. I can hear it. Okay. okay. First question is always the easiest, and it's just, you know, tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Chris Roberts. I'm the Youth and Gang Violence Prevention Coordinator over Roanoke City. Excellent. This is my first podcast, man. I'm really excited to be All doing right. this, man. Like, like, well, again, let's we, do this. Yeah, we hope you have It's a good platform <laughs> also to educate about the good work you're doing. Yeah. Um, that's what we're excited about is the right number of people oh, yeah. we can reach outside of just our events. Absolutely. So it's going to be available on wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> Can't wait. Um, how'd you get to this kind of work? Uh, this has been my life work. Um, started off working at Roanoke Valley Juvenile Detention Center in 2000, um, progressed there up the chain to become supervisor over the pods, um, met a couple of POs while I was down there, got inspired by the work they were doing, and said, I want to be a PO. And so in 2008, became a juvenile probation officer for the juvenile court here in Roanoke City. Did that for four years, then progressed to become a senior parole officer. Once you do senior parole, you're working with the most highest risk juveniles in the city, those individuals who have been convicted of felons, felonies, um, and that's who you supervise. So I did that pretty well to the point where I progressed to a probation supervisor um, and did that for four years. And then this position came available to work with the city. So it was like I did that, came into this role as a youth and gang violence prevention coordinator in October 5th of 2021. The opportunity was something I couldn't pass up just because it was a position in which I can serve our city directly and not be restrained by state regulations, probation terms, court orders, um, and just serve the community and have free reigns to do that. Now, that's the gift and the curse. You know, they say, come on in and, you know, we're not going to micromanage you, but you got to do everything on your own. And you got to build this out and you got to find your niche and you got to get to people. So that was the draw. And I'm here. Nice. <laughs> So over the course of my life's work, you can see a shift from people wanting to survive and their survival tactics were, how do I get money to supply the needs that I have? Um, and it can be basic needs, whether it could be housing, whether it's food, whether it's clothing. And so in the early on 2000s, that was kind of the push and you've seen kids, you know, gravitate to the streets to, to sell drugs or other things or rob individuals. Now it's progressed to he who can exact the most violence is the most feared in the community. So that status in and of itself is starting to be a major lure. So what we look at are these things called adverse childhood experiences. 
our youth in the community sometimes face these. Um, this can be anything like if they've lived with someone who is an alcoholic, problem drinker, user of illegal drugs, takes prescription drugs to get high, or was a problem gambler. If they've ever lived with someone who was depressed, mentally ill, or suicidal, they have someone in their household that's maybe gone to jail or prison. And also if they've seen somebody in their neighborhood that's been shot, stabbed, or beaten. He who's the most violent is the most respected in the community. So not so much needs and, you know, basic needs of housing, shelter, and clothing, and stuff of that nature. Now it's about status. And I would say it kind of grew with the social media trends that are going on in the community now. And so a lot of likes and dislikes are pushing a lot of beefs and issues in the community. So we see youth in our community facing these adverse childhood experiences. Some of the things that they struggle with when they're facing these can be their mental health, they can rely on substance use. So a lot of these times when they see violence in their community, and we are seeing that in our data with the Youth Risk Behavior Survey, that kids that do face these adverse childhood experiences, our data shows that they are more likely to use substances, more so than others who don't face these adverse childhood experiences. And they're also more likely to face mental health challenges as well. On this third episode of The Magic Within, we confront the pressing issue of violence in our community. Hear from Brandy Lazar, Community Engagement Specialist with Roanoke City Sheriff's Office, about this issue facing local youth and Boys and Girls Clubs of Southwest Virginia's Director of Operations, Calvin Curry, and Blue Ridge Behavioral Health's Mackenzie Chitwood, as we explore how the club plays a vital role in being part of the solution. Chris Roberts and Brian Hancock share about The Empathy Project, a local initiative that gives voice to individuals who have personally experienced gun violence. Special thanks to our podcast series sponsor, P1 Technologies. Episode 3 is sponsored by Safe House Signs. Listen in as we share how Boys and Girls Club serves as a safe haven and is inspiring youth to choose paths of peace and positivity. We serve kids in Franklin County, Montgomery County, City of Salem, Town of Vinton, Roanoke City, Roanoke County. So when I first started, I was managing the clubs. I am also responsible for our uh, club facilities. And for much of my time here, was also responsible for human resources. And for a brief moment of time, I was the interim CEO when we were between uh, CEOs. So it sounds like a lot of your job entails safety. It does. My name is Calvin Curry, Director of Operations for the Boys and Girls Clubs of Southwest Virginia. Could you kind of speak to some of the things that the Boys and Girls Club does to provide kind of a safe environment for sure. kids? Sure. The first is how for every person that our kids are introduced to in the Boys and Girls Club, we're making sure that those persons... Uh, have had a background check uh, to make sure that we don't run into any problems. When we interview someone, we make sure that they understand that their role, first and foremost, is to keep our kids safe. Every club is run by a unit director, and then we have what we call youth development professional staff who are in charge of keeping the kids safe. We are mandated reporters, which simply means any child who is under our care if they express or if we see signs of abuse or neglect, it's our responsibility to contact 
the Department of Social Services to let them know our concerns. So as soon as someone comes in the door for an interview, when they're hired, we say over and over again that safety is the number one concern for us. So background checks, we run state and federal background checks. We fingerprint all of our line staff who work directly with kids. And we have uh, multiple opportunities and training where staff members are trained about how to keep kids safe. When we are a part of a child's life, it's very common for staff members to go to after school activities for a club member, whether they're playing football, basketball, if they're in a music recital. And that's where the partnership comes in of a kid who looks at us as a part of their uh, family. And when we have that trust and they know that they're safe, uh, it also extends to their parents where parents just look at us as a part of their extended family. But in the end, if kids are with us in the Boys and Girls Clubs year after year, they know we want what's best for them. And that starts with honest conversations about some of the choices that they're making, whether in school, whether in the club, or maybe things that parents are sharing with us about some of the things that are going on at home. I mean, I used the example the other day talking to a family. I said, you got to understand, this young person that you send out for school may not be the same person that's come back into your home. And you're talking about a six, six, six to seven hour span. You know, the individual goes out, comes back into the home, and there's all kinds of stuff that could be Velcro to them. I'm hearing more conversations from young people about people they know who have been in either a very serious altercation or maybe gun violence. When we hear on the news that someone was shot, I'm hearing more kids say, I know that person. I went to school with that person. Have you noticed um, the ways that with kids being exposed to more um, violent crime, knowing more people who are affected by violent crime, ways that, that again, cropping up, but also ways that the club mitigates those kind of things? We ask our kids to talk about it, to talk about sometimes they know what led to that violent confrontation. So we talk about making great choices, making sure adults are aware when they feel threatened, making sure that if they tell us they are being bullied, giving them some coping strategies so that they can help uh, deal with those situations. So um, having conversations about the violence around our kids is usually our first step in, in, dealing, with, um, in, in dealing with the issue. Along with, I'm very thankful that many of our kids have resources uh, to deal with mental health professionals. We're very thankful that those resources are available. The first time I heard about the Boys and Girls Club is when I started at Blue Ridge Behavioral Healthcare. In my position, I get to come every Friday during the school year, and I have a youth leadership group that I work with. It's middle schoolers. My name's Mackenzie Chitwood. I'm a prevention and wellness specialist at Blue Ridge Behavioral Healthcare. Through this journey, I started in college, of course. You go to college, you're never sure what you want to do. And I took a public health class, and through that I got into prevention, ended up getting my master's in public health, and here I am at Blue Ridge Behavioral Healthcare, 
working with the Roanoke Provincial Alliance and coalitions in the community to help just educate and prevent mental health, substance use, and a whole category of other things. Blue Ridge Behavioral Health Care as a whole offers a lot of mental health services to a broad spectrum of community members. Within that, you also have the Prevention and Wellness Department, which I'm with. Um, we work to educate the community members about all different kind of things. We work to build resilience. We work to educate youth and community members and parents all about substances, how to build resilience, and all of those things and more. First, I'll kind of speak to what the Roanoke Valley is seeing with youth mental health right now. So we do a youth risk behavior survey. Um, we've been doing it for approximately 20 years. But the 2021 data showed that about half or one out of two Roanoke Valley high school aged youth reported feeling sad or hopeless almost every day for two weeks or more in a row that stopped them from doing some usual activity. So that's self-diagnosed depression. So what I want you to picture here is you have a classroom of kids. You're going to split that classroom in half. Statistically speaking, half of that classroom has self-diagnosed depression. And then also when we're looking at the Valley data, so in Roanoke Valley, about one out of 10 high school aged youth reported attempting suicide in 2021. So, and then in this Roanoke City, 72 high school age youth reported attempting suicide, according to our Youth Risk Behavior Survey in 2021. So, again, just to put this into perspective, I want you to imagine the community that you live in right now. Just picture where you live and it's the school year. Now, I want you to imagine that every Tuesday and every Friday for that 36 weeks, you get a phone call that a kid in your community has attempted suicide. Just imagine what you're going to feel like every Monday and Thursday, knowing you're going to get that call the next day for 36 weeks that some kid, high school aged youth in your community has attempted suicide. And if you have been picked to be here, it comes with a lot of responsibility, especially as a, a youth development leader. So it's important the, the kids can identify with that and then be in say, a safe space where they can be themselves. I think that's hard because kids are facing so many different things every single day. I mean, you can tell when somebody's off, when one of the kids are off, they're not talking as much. They're to themselves. Um, it's about, you know, meeting the needs and to help with navigating. Because it's like we all we don't have it all together, but when we work together, we, we get more answers at the end of the day. And so uh, when I first started in, in October of 2021, um, of course, they were charging me with go find the most violent individuals, juveniles or young adults and work with them. Here in Roanoke City, uh, especially, we see so many news stories about 16, 17, 18 year old uh, involved in violence. But in my pursuit to find those individuals, I start running into victims of the acts of these individuals. And so you're seeing families ripped apart with their loved ones being murdered. And these are juveniles or young adults. Many of these kids feel like they don't have options. Many of these kids don't have the kind of skills and especially coping skills to deal with, what do I do when I get angry? What do I do when I'm frustrated? Our kids are giving those tools, not only from Boys and Girls Club programming, but also from other community partners. Some of the kids that we serve, they come from 
uh, different circumstances than our own. So it's important to be sensitive to those things and to be empathetic. My name is Brian uh, Harvest Black Hancock. I am uh, an artist, a spoken word poet. I am an artist in residence for Carillion Healing Arts. Uh, I was a Boys and Girls Club staff, a youth development uh, leader. I'm a writer and uh, I like to do projects and different things with uh, art and music. Um, we have kids that deal with food insecurities. We, we have kids that deal with violence at home, violence in their atmosphere. Um, what these adverse childhood experiences can relate to and how they're prevalent is that mental health correlates with substance use. And, and so it's important to give them tools to where can branch off on their own and find out what they are about. Let them know this space here is a safe space. This is not a toxic space. This is a healing space. And so if we create more spaces like that and have an open dialogue, I think, you know, our young folks can be better off. So it's been so important for these youth to also have what we call positive adverse childhood experiences. And these positive adverse childhood experiences help outweigh those adverse childhood experiences that they're facing. To have those frank conversations and to let them know that they have people that are here that they can trust is very, very important. And so it's important. Mental health is definitely important, especially at, at this developmental age um, of adolescence. It's so important at this age because their brain is developing right now. So your brain develops till you're about 25 or 26 years old. So it's creating those connections. So as they're growing and they're learning how to regulate their emotions, that is so important because when they feel angry, they just don't have outbursts. They're able to control and know, hey, breathing really helps me or journaling really helps me. And it just helps them feel like they're in control, feel like they're able to regulate their emotions and you know how they react to things, which I think then leads to better mental health because they're able to express how they're feeling and get help. People were asking me, can you help me? Can you help me? I need some services. I need counseling. Is there someone I can talk to? It's like, wow, I need to get to these guys, but these people are in line first. To let them know, like I said, they have, they have options. To let them know that they're cared for. And sometimes... Um, having uh, conversations about empathy and having empathy be a bridge to action. How do we give a voice to those individuals who've fallen and a voice to the families who are struggling or still stuck at this transition date, which I've learned the term death out of order. When you have parents or grandparents burying their young, it's out of order. So how do we make this put this back in front of our community, that these people are not just lost, these people are not just forgotten after the funeral or even after the trial. They're still here and they're still suffering. How do we do that? Um, spoke with Doug Jackson. Doug Jackson introduced me to Jane Gabriel. Jane had a program that she presented it's called The Empathy Project, and that's what her and Brian Hancock came up with. And I was like, yo, this is exactly what I want to look for. The Empathy Project is a partnership of different artistry. Uh, Jane Gabrielle and myself, she's a visual artist. I am a, a spoken word artist and a poet and a writer. Um, and we have uh, teamed up with uh, Christopher Roberts of the Gun Violence Task Force to tell with sensitivity and grace the stories of victims of gun violence here in the Roanoke Valley. And so Jane was like, you know, I can do the art piece, the visual piece, and Brian can do the verbal piece, the spoken word piece. 
and we can just move this around the community. It's like, I'm, I'm in 100%. I'm in this 100%. Like I said before, empathy is this bridge to action. So you're going in these rooms with people and you're listening and you're asking them questions because you want to illustrate their stories. And so we're illustrating these stories about um, some very heartbreaking things. And so we're sitting on couches, we're sitting at kitchen tables, listening to these stories and how people are stuck. We're seeing tears. The more that we work together interviewing these families, because it was just Jane Brown and I, neither one of us have any type of counseling degree or counseling experience. We was just basing everything on the human experience and being empathetic to those people who are struggling with life and struggling with this transition that they lost a loved one. And so what we're doing is we're going in and we're doing these interviews. Um, we had three uh, families, uh, the first families that we did. Um, it's a situation where you're going in and you're learning from these families and you're, 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 you're breaking bread and you're sharing their time and they're graciously giving their time. Mm -hmm. I, I remember when we uh, were meeting with a family whom the young man's brother, and he was maybe a year or two younger than a young man who was murdered. And I remember like yesterday, he said, when Brian asked him, what happened on that day when you got the word that your brother was shot down in the street? And he used a term that I'll never forget, he said, the color in the world left. Like the world lost color to me when I lost my brother. And you can see it on his face, you know, the impact of his brother being killed in the street and him shifting and having a whole different perspective on life, Roanoke, his everyday responsibilities shifted. And having these conversations, I even, you know, I, I've even sat in courtrooms where, you know, some of the families are doing their impact statements right in front of the people that tried to victimize them. And they're, uh, they're very resilient families and they're very beautiful people. And I still have personal relationships with a lot of them. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll hang out, um, go to lunch, and, you know, we, we have this time to where we share space. And these people are a part of my life now. Giving him a space to say what that felt like, you can see he was glad someone asked him, what does that feel like? You know, what are you experiencing? And I'm concerned about that, not A, to do a project, but the human experience. I want to share that with as many people as I can to say, look, think before you do this on the residual effect of who you're going to impact. It's been a very uh, tedious process, um, very, very emotional process. I have to actually, after it was over, I had to talk to a counselor about some of the things that I was seeing and hearing. It was plenty of time after we did these interviews, we'll be standing outside and just like, wow, this is heavy lifting. You know, and this is a lot that these folks are going through, but they're doing it alone. Where's the community? How do we wrap community around them and like bring people back into this world? Like these people are still stuck. And they don't have to do this. They don't, but they do. And they graciously have taught from their perspectives. And so the art 
and the spoken word was critical for us to do that. And what we have done is to, uh, put together poems that match the stories of the victims, making beautiful art and presenting it to these families in a very, very tasteful, very, very delicate, very beautiful, many, many splendid, beautiful thing. So we created these art projects and moving them around. And so with it, you know, bringing great art to life. So I created poetry um, that is dedicated to these three families, um, recorded it, and they've been put on QR, QR codes. Jane Gabrielle, she has uh, created these, uh, these, these beautiful uh, paintings that, you know, are dedicated to these three different families. And it tells their story because our stories are vital. And, and it's not like reinventing the wheel, you know, it's just this situations where we're getting these opportunities to tell these very, very unique, complex stories. And hopefully they can go in hand in hand with like teaching our community um, about what, what, what these situations are and how we can like really rally to, to try to evolve from the things that we're seeing. It wasn't well received by those individuals who didn't know much about it. You know, they were talking about you're just you're promoting death or you, you know you're highlighting these things. It's not about promoting or highlighting death. We're talking about putting a human experience to a human experience of death and death to be out of order. You know, what does that feel like and what's the residual effect of that? And then working with the Boys and Girls Club, Brown invited me back here, because at the time he was still working here, to speak to some of the young, I think he was dealing with middle schoolers and high schoolers, to speak to his kids about the work that I do in building empathy and making sure that you remember those individuals who transitioned, remember their families are still here. You know, um, they say that, you know, pain's a great teacher. I wish that it wasn't always, especially in these situations. It's not fair. It really isn't, you know. To have somebody that you love and that you see every day just be stripped away from them. Then even when talking with the younger folks here at the Boys and Girls Club, and Brian's like asking the same thing, what do you think happens to these families? How would you feel? You know, the human experience. You know, if you experience something like this, and what would you want? your community to do for you, whether it's the clergy, whether it's friends, whether it's school, whether it's the Boys and Girls Club. And it's a it's a myriad of emotions and responses we got. We have people who said, I would want to do something about it. I would want to avenge my brother. I would be mad, I would be sad. You know, I, I wouldn't know how to deal with it, but that's good, right? Because we're talking about it, we're talking about it. And that's the most important thing that I try to impart to the, 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 the kids to come here. We have to think before we move. Think before you act, and that's what I try to implement and let them know. It's like, you might not like that person, but they have to come out of their house just like you do. And they have people that care about them. And, and take a minute to understand that. And the overall consensus was, I want people just to listen. I want people to recognize I'm still here. I'm not forgotten. You know, I want people to understand that I may have bad days, but I still want you in my presence. I don't want you, I don't want to be alone. You know, these kids have, you know, classmates, 
who are brothers and sisters of individuals who've been killed recently. And so we just started school this today in Roanoke City. We have elementary school age kids and middle school age kids that are going to school today and they're coming home and their brother has been killed. And so that's something we're working with them to deal with that. This is real, you know, and when you have a moment, you can have a moment. And, you know, I, I, I definitely pray because um, I know that grief is like uh, like a bungee cord. You don't know when it's going to hit. You know, you're just, just pulling back and forth in life. So it's like they have these experiences they teach you. So that's how we're starting that conversation. The conversation is going on. I think the Empathy Project has allowed us to speak a little bit louder. You know, when we have our wise past, past and transition, that's kind of the natural order of things. You know, our wise folks get up in age and they transition. But to have someone who's young, that's a whole different experience. You know, so the Empathy Project was critical for that. I think it's critical. I think it's critical, when, and, I, and I'll keep sticking to it, the human, the human experience. The human experience that we have is not a singular experience. It's not an experience that, you know, allowing people to be human, allowing people to be flawed, you know, and for you to recognize those flaws and be to admit to those flaws is not taboo anymore. To be empathetic to those individuals who transition or empathetic to someone who's just different than you, you need to do that. I mean, mental health and, and empathy, I think, are one hand in hand. And again, I'll keep saying, I think that's the very crust of empathy in and of itself. You know, you want to receive grace when you mess up. So you need to put as much of it as you can into the world. So for me, I've always wondered why we don't focus on prevention more. Why are we letting it get to this point before we implement things? That's always really frustrated me when we can implement things such as simple as just having offering youth one supportive adult that can drastically change outcomes about mental health and about substance use. So, so that's really important because when we see that they have these positive adverse childhood experiences, we're seeing those mental health issues, you know, at a lower rate. We're also seeing substance use at a lower rate. So it's so important to prevent this by putting in these positive adverse childhood experiences. For me, my, my personal story is that I've just always viewed prevention as the key to everything, really. I mean, you know, we can look at so many different things that can be prevented. Just looking at youth and also looking at generational things. So many things can be prevented. Why did we wait until we had gun violence? Why did we wait? We didn't prevent for anything. We just assume these things aren't going to happen. It's not going to happen in my community. It's not going to happen to my kid. It's not going to happen this. It's not going to happen. Why not be ready before? Why not prevent those things from happening by putting in these protective factors or by putting in this prevention? Because then in the end, if it didn't happen, your kid or the youth or the community is still better at the end if you implemented these, pro these protective factors, if you implemented the prevention efforts or whatever it may be. 
we're here for kids who need us most. So the parent who says, I cannot afford to send my kid to the club, that's not going to stop that kid from coming. We're going to find a scholarship to get that kid in. We want that kid with us versus being the latchkey kid at home where mom's at work, young man, young ladies at home. No, we, we want them here with us. So many of our parents work and it is a great relief for our parents that children go from their last period in school straight to a boys and girls club until mom, dad, grandparent, aunt, guardian can pick them up, especially when they are in middle school or high school, because some kids have the choice of going straight home. But when they choose to come to the boys and girls club, when they have a house key in their hands, uh, you can't ask for anything better than that. I have youth that want to go to community events with me and represent Roanoke Prevention Alliance and their youth group. They want to have pencils and pens and they want to have a t-shirt so they can show off that they're, they are youth leaders. With our partnership with Boys and Girls Club and working with the youth, it goes out into the community in so many different ways. So through the Roanoke Youth Leadership Alliance, I really feel like we give those kids that sense of purpose and a sense of future, showing them that they can be leaders. And then once we give them the skills and the tools to be, you know, community leaders or Boys and Girls Club leaders, leaders, it's a rippling effect. The youth who are in the Roanoke Youth Leadership Alliance program are able to feel like they're youth leaders. So then they're going to take that to their school. They're going to take that to their community. And it just really gives them that sense of purpose that they need and that sense of future. So when they have that sense of future, it keeps them going. Our kids learn to, to trust our staff members. So for sometimes it's just a staff member who has the listening ear. But I think when we evolve, we need to listen to our youth and what they need. Like I said, we interviewed all of those kids and one simple thing was listen to me. They just want to be heard. They want to listen. They want you to listen to them. Like I said, it's a place of, you know, trying to be understanding and trying to equip ourselves to say, I'm going to be quiet and just listen. Because, you know, and I, I will I will listen to you. I will shut up and listen. Um, if you want advice, I'll give you advice. Sometimes it's the staff member who is willing to take extra time with a frustrated club member, whether the club member didn't make the basketball team, didn't make the cheerleading squad, maybe they lost a pet, maybe they have a family crisis. I think that we all can just learn from, you know, being quiet and reeling it back and just supporting that way and then imparting advice or letting somebody know, hey, this is where I've been and it's going to be all right. We're very consistent in our programming and what we do, and I think that means a lot to kids. And how important is it to have those spaces? I mean, like the Boys and Girls Club, or like having somewhere where you have a mentor? Critical. Critical. I, I was in Chicago two weeks ago at a national game conference, and um, I think it's Dr. Scott Decker from Arizona State was there, and he said that young men, young boys, need to have at least a minimum of two male role models to pull them out of challenging circumstances. And these moral models can't be guardians or parents. They need to have contact with two. Females need to have six. So a space like the Boys and Girls Clubs provides that, an opportunity to meet with a counselor, 
at Boys and Girls Club, a camp director, or whoever, but there's, there's multiple people here that are hired here to work with our kids to be able to find, every kid will be able to find their niche in the staff members that are here because it's a diverse staff here. But I do think that there's definitely, if they have these positive adverse childhood experiences, they're able, they just, just having that one supportive adult that I can talk to and trust that listens to me makes it all the difference in the world for them. So to be able to do that, a place like Boys and Girls Club, the YMCA, sports, allows them contact with these positive role models, which will, again, from the stats and the data, will help those individuals through these challenging circumstances. Again, we're focusing, again, on what makes this place magic. What is the secret to, again, kids wanting to come back and work here, kids coming here their entire lives, kids never forgetting or never feeling like this place isn't a second home Mm -hmm. or a second family? Mm -hmm. The magic, having kids from elementary school through high school, great staff members, and staff members who are there for kids at a very crucial time. I was working for the Council of Community Services, saw an ad in what seems like ancient times, the Roanoke Times, and applied uh, to the Boys and Girls Clubs and f- was fortunate enough to, uh, to get the position. And October the 1st will be uh, 12 years of full-time service. That's great. And, you know, what's kept you here all this time? The kids. We're fortunate that we are on the other side of our 9th Street Club. So during the summer, as soon as we come in the office, we hear noise and we hear kids playing and laughing and learning. And during the school year, 18 different buses that are dropping kids off. And as soon as the bus door opens, the joy is hearing kids run out of the the bus and run down our driveway. Uh, because they're excited to come to the club. So one thing that I noticed that's different about the Boys and Girls Club is the kids actually talk about wanting to go. <laughs> so, so you really don't get too many after-school programs or summer programs where the kids are excited to attend and they're like, oh yeah, like when you ask them what they're doing over the summer, like, oh, well, I'll be going to the Boys and Girls Club. It's like, that's amazing because they feel that sense of welcome. And that's just very important. Um, I tell people all the time, anytime you... Uh, anticipate working with children or um, you're thinking about any kind of programs that deal with kids you the kids are they can tell they can see straight through you like a wet paper bag um, right and so if you're not genuine the kids pick up on that one of the things that I am concerned about in this day and time I want especially young men who look like me who are African-American to know that most police officers are great people. Well, I'm Brandy, and uh, I was raised here in Roanoke City. I'm currently a deputy sheriff at Roanoke City Sheriff's Office, and I've been there for 10 years. So um, I started and um, right when I turned 21. So at the ripe age of 21, I started working down at the sheriff's office and been there ever since. So it's been a good time. I'm currently a community engagement sergeant, so I have a lot of interaction with our public and um, our students in the school system. I've had some experience being a school resource officer for four years, and that has been amazing. 
So I've built a lot of great community relationships and partnerships just through my involvement and being employed at the Roanoke Sheriff's Office. What does it do also, you know, what's been your experience with having kids, you know, having exposure to law enforcement, having, you know, that kind of presence um, and and having that kind of help in hand, having, you know, an experience with, with the Sheriff's Department they might not have ever had other than maybe a resource officer in the school? Right. So funny that you should say that. So when I first started with the sheriff's office back in 2013, I was working shift. Right. So we did 12 hours um, on and then you were off. So um, I would come most of the time not in uniform. And so a lot of times the kids didn't realize that I was law enforcement until I came on a day where I was going into like a night shift. So I'd come before I'd go to work because we're, you know, not too far. Um, And they were like, wait, what? (laughs) So like just being taken back, especially because you guys have kids here that um, don't go to city schools. And so um, they would be meeting me for the first time in plain clothes. And then one day I show up and I'm in my my deputy sheriff outfit, my uniform, and they're like, no way. (laughs) If I can introduce a police officer to a young man who is African-American in the first or second grade, when he becomes a young adult, I want to take that fear out of, I can't hold a conversation with him. He's a human being just like we are. So some of them were um, like really inspired by it and others were kind of put on guard. Um, they're like, mm, I don't know if I can trust this now, you're the police. <laughs> but too many times, especially in the African-American community, there are myths that are built. And if there's no one to introduce a young child to a police officer, that's where things can get really dicey. It's just like, well, I'm the same person that you met outside of uniform, right? And so then you, it opens up the space for that conversation to have with our youth and just let them know, like, you don't have to be afraid of police. You weren't afraid of me yesterday when I was in plate and clothes. You don't have to be afraid of me today because that you see me in uniform. I'm the same person that you were getting to know yesterday. It's great when our young kids see police officers come because they view them as an ally and not a threat versus the teenager who hasn't had that exposure and and they're scared. They, they shouldn't be of a public safety officer. Uh, and that's where we come in is to make that introduction. And so just having that conversation and just reminding our kids that um, just because I'm a law enforcement officer, like there's different parts of me um, that are unique to me that don't change just because of the job that I have. And so the job that I have is to serve and protect. And and that's why I enjoy what I'm doing. And that's why I come here in my uniform and let you know, like, yeah, I'm also a, a deputy sheriff here in the city. We try our best to bring in the sheriff's department and the police department often so that our kids see the officers in a good light, not Um, by way of a tragedy. And so just understanding that you can approach me and talk to me and have regular conversations when I'm in uniform and when I'm not in uniform. So our kids understand that so many police officers um, are just like their parents, just like aunts and uncles, but it's giving them the exposure that I think is very important. The fact that there's been a lot of genuine staff members here at the Boys and Girls Club, it makes all the difference, especially for the kids and the interactions that that they have. It's like a a family bond that kind of gets built over time. Um, And the kids really, they really take well to that. And so just 
understanding that relationships and trust take time. Um, so that's why it's important for us to just continue to be present, right? So it wouldn't do any good for me to just come to the Boys and Girls Club once a month and be like, okay, guys, here I am, your friendly oh, SRO, like you can trust me. It doesn't work that way because they'll look at you and be like, uh, I kind of remember you, but not really. And why are you here again? Like, did someone get in trouble? It's like, no, no, I just want to hang out. <laughs> so um, just having that continuous presence is really what makes the difference and helps you build that relationship. So one time some of the kids looked and said, oh, my gosh, you guys actually came back. And so I think it is important that we continue to um, show up at spaces such as the Boys and Girls Club and other community centers outside of school. Just show up. Just be there. If you say you're going to be there, show up for them. So something simple is just listening, helping them with homework. And then when I see you at Walmart, just knowing like, hey, that's the lady that was in my school. Like she was real nice. And so I've had a lot of kids introduce me to their parents when like I've ran into them at the grocery store. And they're just so excited because they see me on a regular basis and they know that I genuinely care. Long term, if they've always had somebody that supported them, that's cared about them, showed them that they've mattered to them. Long term, they'll feel that, again, going back to that sense of purpose and sense of future, like they matter. They matter to the community. They matter to the Boys and Girls Club community, which then inspires them to have that sense of future because they matter and somebody cares about them and wants to see them do great. They develop that sense of future, which then in long term helps, you know, helps, again, regulate those emotions, helps their mental health, their sense of worth just knowing that um, the continuous presence is really what builds that trust in that relationship and just making sure that we're um, being a part and present as much as we can be. In my experience as a law enforcement officer here in Roanoke City, like I've had opportunities upon opportunities to work with our youth and to kind of um, just in my daily duties just understand the violence that's impacting our city and our community and, and knowing that not only are the adults affected, but our kids are too, probably more so than the adults, right? Because they're in the those crucial stages of growth and development and our environment definitely impacts how we move through life and some of the things that we experience. Some of the things that our kids see, you know, we it terrifies us as adults. And so you can imagine like with them still being in school and still um, trying to find their space and identify themselves, you can imagine how um, community violence can impact them in a negative way. But our kids are very resilient. We try to expose our kids to as many different resources as we can. And they get to hear stories about great things that are happening in their community. Too many times we want to talk about the violence and the problems, but we need to lift up some of the great things that are happening in our communities. And I think when the kids get an opportunity to go to places like this, it just gives them the hope of what can be. You know, the graduates of the Boys and Girls Club will tell you, if it wasn't for the Boys and Girls Club, then this is nationwide. I don't know where my life would be at. And this is something we're experiencing here in Roanoke City. And some folks think Roanoke City is a small place that nobody knows of, but there's been a lot of people who graduated from Boys and Girls Club and went on to do big things. And there's people coming in the door to experience the same thing. So you gotta come see it. You, you gotta come to the Boys and Girls Club to see the kids and see how well they're treated by the staff here and how this space is safe for them. 
having safe spaces for our kids to go, such as the Boys and Girls Club or, you know, other other community centers out here as well that are doing great things and providing that safe space for our kids. I think it's um, it just goes to show that when we even though like there are negative things going on in our community, as long as the kids can have a space where they can go and still be kids and not worry about the things that are going on outside. I think that's very important. Yeah, I, I can't say enough about Brian, the Boys and Girls Club. It's a place for growth, you know, and safety, and kids will thrive here. So I would say you got to go see it. Again, centers like the Boys and Girls Club, the Weston Center, the YMCA, YHQ, like there are just so many different spaces that are offering safe places for kids to just be kids in the midst of all of uh, what's going on in our community. If you or someone you know is struggling or in crisis, help is available. Call or text 988 or chat 988lifeline.org. You can also reach Crisis Text Line by texting MHA to 741741. Thank you for joining us on this incredible journey of The Magic Within, a podcast series by Boys and Girls Clubs of Southwest Virginia. Thank you to our guests who shared their stories on this episode. And if people wanted to find out more about the Empathy Project, where can they go to, to learn about that? Or you can it? actually email me at Christopher.Roberts uh, at gov, and I can send you one of our Google Doc links and you can be able to see the project. That's great. And again, if somebody wants to get involved with the project, just do the same thing, just email you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Any victim or any family that feel like they want to get their voice out, they're more than welcome to join that project and we'll roll them out. Thank you for being a part of this. (laughs) Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. We want to extend a special invitation to you, our listener. If you believe, as we do, that every child deserves a chance to shine and reach their full potential, please support our mission. I I would love for someone to support us by way of a financial donation. Someone who has a skill set who's willing to volunteer with us once a week. Someone who is willing to believe in the future of a child they've never met and the work that we do, that when that child walks out of 12th grade, that they are ready to make a positive impact for society. That's that's what we do. Your contributions can make a profound impact, helping us continue to unlock the magic within each young person that we serve. Visit our website at www.bgcswva.org to find out how you can get involved, donate, and volunteer. Together, we can create brighter futures for the youth across our region. This series was created by Will Soleri and Emily Pinkerton and edited and produced by Will Soleri. Thank you to our podcast series sponsor, P1 Technologies, and episode sponsor, Safe House Signs, with additional support from Branch Group, Whistler Plumbing and Air, Cox Communications, Carmus, Pinnacle Financial Partners, Roanoke Valley Orthodontics, New River Electrical, Dominion Risk Advisors, First Citizens Bank, Freedom First, and Member One Federal Credit Union. Our theme music is titled Sonata for a Red Moon and was composed and performed by our very own 17-year-old club member, Rex. We appreciate you joining us. Until next time, keep believing in the magic within. What, what do you want to do when you grow up? 
I'm Ben. Grimace. Yeah, you're gonna be Grimace. Yeah. Who we'll hunt people with the Grimace shake? Oh yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. So can I leave now? <laughs> you died. I, I just gotta hear it real quick. What's your? Tell me about Gr the Grimace shake. Oh yeah. Is we done? Sure. Unless you got anything else to say. I don't got nothing to say. <laughs>